Hello and welcome to this week's edition of The Vasey View. Today I'm joined by my friend Nina Schick, who is a very well-known policy guru in the area of technology and particularly in artificial intelligence. And Nina's just published a book, Deep Fakes and the Infocalypse. I hope I spelt that right. It's a bit of a mouthful. What you urgently need to know about deep fakes and the infocalypse. And obviously what we're talking about here is the tsunami of fake news and fake information that now dominates the internet and what the implications are for that and how we can defend ourselves uh, against it. But uh, Nina and I first met when uh, we debated Facebook and I was actually defending Facebook and Nina was putting the boot into Facebook and unsurprisingly, because of Nina's fantastic talent, she wiped the floor with me in that debate. So, but we're still friends after that. So welcome to the podcast, Nina. Hi, Ed. Good to be on. So tell us a bit about your life and career. I think for the last 10 years, you've been involved in all of this, uh, you know, really the kind of policy implications of tech, which is an area that I'm obviously absolutely fascinated by and that's why I was also very keen to talk to you in general about tech and policy but also specifically about your book so talk us tell us a bit about the work you've been doing yeah well my background is really started as a policy analyst looking at the UK's relationship with the EU and while I was focusing on European about 10 years ago all these kind of seismic events were happening and the first kind of big event that catapulted me into the future of how technology is transforming politics and society in the 21st century was um, when the Russian invasion of Ukraine happened and the annexation of Crimea. Because then as I was following these events unfolding, as MH17 was shot down, you know, it's very interesting to see how the Russian state was propagandizing around those events and using the new tools in our information ecosystem that have completely transformed it right so like social media internet smartphones and seeing how they were pushing a narrative that was undermining the west and since then i've been working on um some election campaigns again seeing how big data and technology and uh modern campaigning is transforming electoral politics and also then started looking at election interference um, in 2016. So what kind of foreign powers were doing in the US in 2016 and how that's evolved in the context of 2020. So a few years ago, I was advising the former NATO Secretary General and uh, a group of global leaders, including Joe Biden, on what the kind of attacks of the future might look like in the information age on um, democracy. And that's when I first discovered deepfakes because they had just emerged on Reddit. And I'm sure we'll go into a bit more about what a deepfake is and synthetic media. But as soon as I came across this phenomenon, which was rearing its head in a kind of dark place of the internet, I realized this would have a tremendous implication on democracy, but not only democracy, society at large. And it really is analogous, analogous to the story of deep fake is really analogous, I think, to the exponential advances of our age when it comes to technology and the implications that are going to have on society and politics, both good and bad. And I think this is um, the perfect case study 
for how rapidly things are changing in the age of information, how they are transforming even quicker now that we're entering the age of AI and how we need to be prepared for the huge transformations that are inevitably coming down the line. The term infocalypse, how did that uh, come about? <laughs> I'm not sure if I pronounced it right. What, what does it mean? Yeah, no, you did pronounce it right, infocalypse. So it was actually termed by, it was coined by a US technologist. And I seized upon it because I wanted to find a word to describe how dangerous and untrustworthy our information ecosystem has become. So if you think about the age of information, you know, it's taken about 20, 25 years, if you think of the huge advances of the age of information, for that to also reveal its uglier and darker side. And now I think we're facing a monumental crisis of mis and disinformation, right? So often with some of these huge advances in technology, um, the utopian vision which turns out to be true. I mean, like I, I you, we've seen, especially in lockdown, how all these huge advances in human communication in our information ecosystem has been hugely beneficial. But of course, there's also a negative side. And the infocalypse is really a word that I use to describe the information ecosystem which we now exist in, which I say has become increasingly untrustworthy and dangerous and is connected to the advances in human communication technology of the last 30 years so primarily the internet social media and smartphones and i think that deep fakes so ai generated synthetic or fake media are the next evolving threat in the infocalypse and we will go into you know the the potential benefits and positive use cases of synthetic media but undeniably there is a darker side to the use of um, synthetic media and this is why I call the negative use of synthetic media deepfakes um, and it really we've been so bad at dealing with our crisis of mis and disinformation for the last 10 years we need to be better at the dealing with the you know the next potent threat that's coming down the line and I say that's deepfakes. So let's talk a bit about what a deep fake is and, and the definition of deep fake. If you don't know what a deep fake is, I mean, the most famous example, relatively benign because it was designed to, to, to show what a deep fake was, is, is a deep fake of President Obama being rude about President Trump. But it was flagged as an example. It wasn't an attempt to deceive people. But obviously, deep fakes you mentioned started on the dark web. What are they? And I think you also say that... Uh, you know, 90% of the video we see in the next few years could be synthetic media deep fakes. They're sort of interchangeable terms. Yeah. So it's really important. I think this is a very important question because it's essential to get the taxonomy around this right. And this whole area is still so new, it hasn't been established. So I kind of make a crack at defining it in the book. So a deep fake is a type of synthetic media. And what synthetic media is, is a type of fake or synthetic media that's either generated wholly by AI or manipulated by AI. We're talking about videos, images, um, audio, um, it can also be text. So that is synthetic media. And the revolution in synthetic media, which is coming, it's already started and is going to explode in the next five to 10 years, is completely going to transform the content production industries, the creative industries. You know, there's gonna be many, many um, amazing use cases for synthetic media. So imagine how 
incredible the movies will become or how it is going to transform the gaming industry because you're basically going to be able to get AI to generate media content for you, right? So you're going to strip out the cost, you're going to strip out the need for expertise, you're going to strip out, you're putting Hollywood level special effects when it comes to audiovisual material into the hands of almost anyone. This is the democratizing power of AI and the ability of AI or machine learning systems to actually be able to generate this type of synthetic media is so new. It comes out of the kind of deep learning uh, revolution of the last five years and the real world application in terms of synthetic media has only been around for about two and a half years. Now, I say that, and we already see it, we see it in the first use case, that synthetic media will also be used as the most sophisticated form of fakery that we've known, right? Being able to generate fake video, fake audio, fake images uh, of people saying and doing things they've never done in places they've never been. The intent behind the creation of a piece of synthetic media is very important. And if a piece of synthetic media is being used for disinformation or misinformation, that's when I call it a deep fake. So I established that um, the taxonomy and is distinguished between the difference of the positive and negative use cases because um, there will be amazing use cases for synthetic media. It's going to, like I say, completely transform the content industry, but we need to have a word for the malicious use cases. And that's where I land on deepfake. Let's just briefly talk about uh, the good or the commercial implications. I mean, you give an example in the uh, book of a, a deepfake, or perhaps I shouldn't use deepfake, synthetic media used to promote the outstanding uh, documentary, The Last Dance, uh, about Michael Jordan, where I think a sports commentator, Kenny Mayne, is commentating on the uh, basketball uh, in sort of 19, in the 1990s, shows how much I know about uh, basketball, uh, and says, um, someday they're going to make a documentary about this called The Last Dance. And of course, this is synthetic media, and it was used as a kind of almost an award-winning advert to promote it. Yes, yeah, so this ad was amazing. It showed how uh, synthetic media and AI is going to completely transform again, like the advertising content production industry, because you are stripping out the need to have massive, massive budgets and teams of experts to create a piece of video content, which previously would have been in the, the domain of only the movie. So what they did is they took some historic footage of um, the ESPN announcer and they put words in his mouth. So they were able to manipulate that historic footage of him and generate the, you use AI to generate him saying, I predict that there's going to be a documentary in 20 years time. It's going to come out on ESPN. So he became like this suit, you know, he became, he looked at his crystal ball and he told what was going to happen in the future. And that was all because of synthetic media. So that's one application in advertising. And that ad is really amazing. I would recommend everyone to look it up. But of course, um, the other huge application is simply for the creative industry. So if anybody, so if I've talked to a few CEOs of um, companies who are generating synthetic media and they say, you know, this is a win for creativity because essentially you're allowing any YouTuber to create um, video footage that's just as sophisticated as a Hollywood film. And you've already kind of started seeing some of that appearing on YouTube where you have um, they call themselves deepfakes artists because, again, the taxonomy hasn't really been established. But you see, there goes 
at using AI software, which is open source and available now to recreate movies, special effects. So if you remember the Irishman, you know, the Martin Sorcisi film where he tried to de-age the actors and he had like a triple lens rig and his budget went into the multi-millions. He had the best special effects artists. And yet the end result, you know, as a viewer, it was, yeah, it wasn't quite there yet. But you can look on YouTube and look at um, there's one artist who calls himself iFake, who's taken that footage and just run it through uh, an AI software, like a, a synthetic media platform. And his result is almost much more convincing than I think Scorsese made. And of course, his budget was zero. So, so iFake in his bedroom produces a better movie than Scorsese. But the, I can't work out from what you're saying, should I be investing in... VFX companies and Hollywood studios, or should I be thinking these guys are going to be dinosaurs in a couple of years' time? I can't really work out whether what is going to happen in terms of if I was thinking about this from an investment perspective, should I be backing the big studios or thinking they're going to be completely disrupted? Well, they are going to be completely disrupted, but I think all the big studios are inevitably going to be looking at this technology of course they are because it is it's complete you can already see it i mean again in computer in computer graphics um so if you imagine like for fifa how they when they try to get cristiano ronaldo they need to come in he needs to come in he they need to put him against a green screen and then like the end effect in the game is a player who doesn't look that convincing yet if you use ai you can already generate a cristiano ronaldo for the graphics of your game that look far more convincing than anything that's been done in the past so all special effects studios, um, all Hollywood studios are inevitably going to be looking this into this technology. If I may say so, the future when it comes to media is synthetic. And um, some, some of the data scientists and uh, synthetic media company CEOs who I've been speaking to think that in five to 10 years, and I think this is a reasonable prediction they think that up to 80 or 90 percent of video content online is going to be partially or wholly synthetic i was thinking about this is this is going to sound very pedestrian but in terms of how mainstream companies use synth synthetic video i was thinking you know if i was the ceo of a global company i could put out a video where for the sake of argument i'm speaking fluent dutch to my dutch employees fluent german to my German employees, are, are companies thinking along those lines or is that a step too far in terms of trust between the management and people who work at the company? Ed, it's amazing that you asked me that question because it's not pedestrian at all. It's already happening. So one synthetic media company who, you know, one of the good guys, at least, or somebody who's using this, the power of this technology for a commercial use and thinking about the ethical implications is a company called Synthesia. They're based here in London. Um, I interview the CEO um, in my book. They actually picked up on this idea and they have like a brilliant team of data scientists. Their first investor was Mark Cuban in 2017, who kind of 
realize the potential of synthetic media. And their first kind of commercial application for the technology is precisely that corporate communications. They already work with some big Fortune 500 companies, and that's exactly what they do. They need a little bit of footage of the CEO of the company so that they can create his AI avatar. They obviously need his written consent before they run anything he says through their platform. They need to confirm that he has given his consent for those words to be generated in a synthetically generated film. And they dub and they translate into various different languages. I mean, they are, their service for companies right now is literally you can um, either use one of their actors to synthetically generate any corporate communications message in a variety of different languages in, in, in the few clicks of a button, or it can be you, you know, the leadership of the company. So this is a great example of why Nina should be in every boardroom uh, in 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 the world because you could be telling uh, chief executives about the opportunities. But I think you should also we need to obviously flag up the threats because there are now black arts PR companies, as I understand it from your book. Uh, I hope I haven't libeled anyone. Uh, where, for example, the example I just gave of a CEO speaking in. 15 different languages to his or her employees around the world. Equally, somebody with malicious intent could make a, a video of that CEO saying, you know, I just don't care about my workers. I'm going to work them till they drop. Companies are used to being kind of attacked on social media. It's become part of the boardroom culture, I hope, for most companies to think about their presence on social media and to respond rapidly to attacks. But a synthetic video of a company CEO saying something unpalatable could easily go viral. So they need to be aware of this. 100% you are spot on. Um, and often we tend to think of disinformation or bad information or bad actors spreading rumors and lies as being in the realm of politics or geopolitics. You think of Russian interference or domestic political campaigns. However, as I argue in my book, in this ecosystem, which we exist in, the infocalypse, where deepfakes, I think, are the next evolving threat, every single individual, and more importantly, every single company needs to prepare and mitigate for the risks of disinformation being used maliciously against them, because not only are the tools becoming increasingly sophisticated, they're also being democratized so that anybody can almost anybody without any resources can um, attack you in this way. So it's almost like the threat of cyber was 10, 15 years ago, where everybody knew it was coming, you know, cyber attacks, hacks, um, but companies didn't understand what kind of systems they need to put in place to mitigate against the risk of um, cyber attacks until there were some very charismatic use cases. And in the case of synthetic media, those kind of corporate use cases have already started emerging. So you talked, you briefly touched on geopolitics. Let's let's go and look at uh, politics in some uh, depth and the impact that deepfakes and indeed the infocalypse in general is going to have on our political system. Now, let me say something provocative, as it were, to kickstart our conversation. Uh, I sometimes I sometimes downplay uh, the impact of fake news. So let me explain a bit about what I say. So I once silenced a Silicon Valley dinner party by saying, I don't think uh, Facebook or Russian interference won 
trump the election. I thought Trump was simply the best candidate. And I say that not because I th I'm necessarily a Trump supporter, but because he was larger than life. He blew away his Republican opponents and then he made Hillary Clinton look kind of wooden and so on. And you and I are both Remainers. We campaign for, for the Europe, uh, Britain to stay in the European Union. We think Brexit is a tragedy, but I still say to my Remainer friends, uh, it wasn't fake news or spending on digital uh, that won Brexit the referendum. These kind of political changes happen in the past. Do, is, 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 do, is there a danger sometimes, particularly with things like uh, the new, new deep fakes in Focalypse of, of the losers blaming the tools rather than just accepting that these are political trends? I, I really, I'm not trying to kind of close no, that no, discussion it's, no, for you to admit, oh no, it's it's all exaggerated. But but I think we are in the foothills, so I do accept that we things could potentially get a lot worse. Yeah, no, I think it's a really, really important point that you raise. And I actually spend some time in, in the book, I, I make exactly that point. So to say that Brexit was, oh, because of sophisticated digital campaigning and lies or that Trump only won because of Facebook or Russian interference is simply not true. I mean, you and I have inhabited the policy roles around these seismic political events for a long time, you much longer than I. And we know that they happen for a whole multitude of reasons, which is it would just be dishonest and intellectually not rigorous if we're like, oh, it was because of interference in Facebook and the dark evil arts. So I agree with you on that point. However, my point about Russian interference is that it is definitely happening. <laughs> it has been happening since the 80s. I mean, the, the Russians since the Soviet era have been able to punch above their weight geopolitically because they are so sophisticated at information operations. And what I see as a trend, and I track this in my book, is how the Russians have been able to use the evolving technology that is coming to define our information ecosystem to create more and more potent disinformation campaigns. Now, that's not to say that everything that's happening in the West can be blamed on the Russians. It certainly can't be. But what we should not be divided on is that Russian interference actually is happening and that it exists. And that's the problem in our Western societies from the US to the UK that people still think it's not happening and that it's all made up. So that's where uh, I think we need to have a more nuanced discussion because on one hand, it can't be, oh, it's all because of the Russians and Facebook. And on the other hand, it can't be, well, this is all for the birds and the Russians didn't do anything. Um, we need to understand that um, influence operations particularly in our new information ecosystem, is becoming a central tenant of foreign policy for rogue and authoritarian states. Russia leads the way, but other nation states are looking at Russia and starting to emulate what they do, um, in particular China, and in particular at this moment where given the geopolitical importance of COVID, they've started to intervene in Western information spaces in ways that they hadn't done before. I, I mean, I, I do accept that. And I, I, you know, we have mobile phone masks burnt down in the United Kingdom. And my understanding from your book is that that started with Russian disinformation as a divide and rule between China and the West, saying that uh, coronavirus came about because of the Chinese research on the 5G network. So the physical manifestation of disinformation is there for people to see. 
Absolutely. And I think what in, in the book, I have a chapter on COVID. And the reason I include that, because I think COVID is the perfect case study um, in terms of my argument, which is that the information ecosystem is increasingly dangerous and untrustworthy. And you see it playing out in all its dimensions, because you see what's happening at the geopolitical level, right, where Russia is pushing a trope, which it has long pushed since the Soviet, uh, since since the Cold War, that uh, COVID is a biological weapon invented by the CIA to kill its African-American people or uh, its its enemies around the world. This is a long running trope because the Soviets were pushing that as a piece of disinformation, even in the 80s when they said that HIV AIDS was a biological weapon created by the CIA to kill African-Americans. Now you have China coming in and doing the same thing against the West because obviously there are the repercussions potentially geopolitically for the cover-up that China did when COVID first emerged are so immense that they've started saying, well, no, this is potentially a biological weapon engineered by the US and we don't even know that it actually came from Wuhan. So you have that, the whole geopolitical information warfare around COVID, but you also have the domestic disinformation. And um, the kind of whole 5G conspiracy, it's not just being pushed by uh, China and Russia, it's also being pushed by conspiracy theorists who are completely homegrown. And here in the UK, you know, one famous proponent was David Icke, and he has so much influence in this new information ecosystem. He, you know, he wouldn't have been able to have the reach that he has 50 years ago, but because we exist in this new information ecosystem, he has become an influencer. This is a man who thinks the royal family is descended from lizards, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> literally. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, it, it, he, and yet, he millions of people listen to him right and he's a trusted figure in, in some communities and to, to many individuals and that the manifestation of that has literally here in the uk been over 70 uh, arson attacks on 5g masts um and it's not only that we see it with um anti-vax conspiracies there was a poll that came out the other day that said 30% of British adults would not have a COVID vaccine if there was one, because they're afraid that it's Bill, Bill Gates implanting a microchip into them. So there you go. Uh, hearing you speak, all I can think about is military defense. So two, two things occur to me as you, as you talk about the kind of Russian sophistication. Uh, and I sort of feel a, a bit like nuclear weapons. The, the first thing occurs to me is, is you know, is, are the West kind of military capabilities very far behind. So I regard misinformation potentially as a kind of military strategy. So uh, is do Western military forces think about this as a strategy when they're involved in a conflict? Do uh, Is there a way, does anyone ever talk about, just as we have the START Treaty and so on, and we, we have kind of protocols on how many nuclear missiles you can have and so on, will there ever be a time when we talk about disinformation in this category and also our democracies by definition hamstrung i mean i can't imagine a u.s president perhaps not this one but a u.s president saying well for the sake of argument instead of uh, invading iraq we'll do a massive propaganda disinformation campaign against saddam hussein i mean there's a jumble of questions there but first of all you know the uh, is the west thinking about this as a military strategy and is there any way that 
sovereign nations can come together to agree some kind of Geneva-style protocol on how disinformation is used. I can't see the Russians coming to the table or the Chinese on this. Um, so it absolutely should be thought of as a question of national security and an area where all military, uh, all militaries in the Western world should be focusing on. And I mean, I have personal experience of this, right? Because I first came to it when I was advising the NATO Secretary General. And it was, he was more old school. I mean, he was like, where's the tank on the border? You know, where's the little green man? And he didn't necessarily always understand the urgency of this question. But there are many military leaders. I was listening to um, a great interview with Richard Barons, who used to lead the British Armed Forces who recognize that information warfare is going to be one of the main ways in which war is waged in the 21st century, right? It's going to be less about physical invasions and uh, boots on the ground, but increasingly this um, battle of narratives. And to us in the West, it's so important because this kind of model that we have sometimes come to accept as being universal and true and that it can't be shaken. And I'm talking about the liberal democratic model, you know, one in which the United States and Europe and the other Western democracies are united and together and believe in liberal democracy and free and open markets. The, you know, the idea that literally a few years ago in the 90s was declared, you know, this was the winning model, we've reached the end of history, that is increasingly being corroded. And we've seen authoritarian and rogue nation states in the world who have different visions for how society and politics should be run. So if we don't recognize how the information warfare by states that are antagonistic towards this way of life and our model of democracy are undermining and corroding us in the West, then I think, you know, we are in for a long decline. I think it is one of the most fundamental issues to our kind of national security and way of life. And I do think that people who are in the military, both here in the UK and in the US, understand that and recognize that as an evolving uh, method of warfare. In terms of are we as a democracy more at risk, I would say yes, because number one, if we believe in these ideals that of liberal democracy, uh, freedom of information, um, rights for people to decide their own government themselves, then of course we can't then be like, well, we're going to engage in propaganda ops against Iraq, right? It's it's just not going to happen because you're going to you're going to lose public trust, and you can imagine what the free press is going to have to say about that. This is not something that we can openly be involved in because the moment we decide that we want to be like China, uh, uh, Russia, and just engage in information operations against our enemies in the world, then we have just become like them, right? So this is. Exactly. So you can't have this kind of mutually assured destruction. No, you, you can't you, do a kind cannot. of campaign of disinformation in Moscow. No, because we're a liberal democracy. We can't kind of show, to put it very crudely, the Russians kind of what it's like to be on the receiving end. No, you absolutely can't. And the second reason, because what then what's the whole point? You know, because then we're, we're just the same. The second point is we are more at risk because of the nature of our free and open society in which 
everybody has access to information in which uh, we believe in the freedom of speech, and I think all of these rights need to be upheld, means that we're more vulnerable. And this is one of the reasons why, I mean, Russian disinformation campaigns have become so much more potent because in the 80s, when um, a lie about, you know, the creation of HIV AIDS as a biological weapon by the CIA was being pushed by the Soviets, they kind of, it took 10 years to go viral. They planted it in an Indian newspaper. And then over 10 years, it was reprinted in newspapers around the world. Today, they can infiltrate our society using social media, posing as authentic Americans or British people. And, um, grow and then entrench tribal identities that lead to the divisive and uh, divisive and polarized nature within our democracy. You know, they can literally infiltrate our democracy by using Western information spaces um, through social media. So, but we cannot do that in China because the way that the Chinese information ecosystem works is completely different. Not, not saying we'd want to, but the state has a monopoly over a lot of the social media platforms and um, the information which its citizens receive. So if you look at the Chinese model of the Internet in, in um, the age of information, it is a monolith, right? So it is less prone for disruption apart, uh, uh, apart from the Chinese state, which can control the narrative and events, whereas here in the West, because we believe in a free and open society with free and open access to information and freedom of information, we can be disrupted in ways in which authoritarian states' uh, information systems cannot be. Uh, so much I want to talk to you about, but let's talk quickly about policy solutions. And in fact, just dealing on the military side first, uh, in your, I interviewed uh, a guy called uh, Tavi Kotka from Estonia about um, digital government in Estonia, because Estonia is obviously uh, the poster country for digital government. And you mentioned in your book about how Estonia, to counter this kind of cyber warfare that they suffer, has adopted this policy of psychological defence. Can you talk a bit about that as possibly one way forward? Yeah, so I think the first, the, the point where we have to start from is a recognition that there is no silver bullet answer to solve the problems of our, you know, broken information ecosystem. And that when it comes to talking about a society or a democracy defending itself, we can't just be, oh, it's up to the government to regulate it, or it's all a big tech's problem. Um, what Estonia has done very, very effectively, because they have been for many years in the eye of aggressive Soviet disinformation campaigns is respond with a society-wide mobilization. And one Estonian um, disinformation expert who's an advisor to the government described it to me in a very neat way. He's like, imagine yourself being in you know the tower of a medieval fortress and you have layers and layers of protection. So you have the moat, then you have the outer wall, then you have the inner wall, and then you have, you know, the, the gate. So we as a society only become resilient when we mobilize all of society, which is what um, Estonia has done from having a sophisticated kind of digital and cyber strategy to digital education, quote unquote, um, of the, the population to talking about the disinformation 
tactics that have been used by Russia and actually having like a very public discourse around that. I mean, and when I, for example, when I see that compared to the UK, where when Salisbury happened, the leader of the opposition at the time, Jeremy Corbyn, was literally questioning whether or not the, I mean, he would have, Ed, you, you would have known, he would have had access to, um, confidential private military information intelligence showing him that that was the case so you cannot have a situation where the leader of the opposition is denying that this is potentially happening because you know otherwise there is no way to start so society-wide mobilization which essentially if you think about it is there's two kind of strands one is all the tech solutions so um the ai to actually detect things like deep fakes uh creating yeah i want to talk about those mm -hmm. two two issues very quickly so it's a nice segue first of all you know uh theresa may as the then prime minister when the sort of attack happens i thought although the leader of the opposition behaved suboptimally uh she behaved brilliantly i think in putting the information out there and one of the aids there was bellingcat which is a kind of uh disinformation detecting press service that's emerged so one issue is obviously the role of legitimate broadcasters here in the UK. We're lucky to have the BBC. You know, people know that there are trusted sources of news they can go to. So what role will they play? And then obviously you're talking about AI detection tools. The elephant in the room during this whole discussion is indeed Facebook and Twitter and what they are doing to counter disinformation. I mean, from my perspective as a mere citizen, I tear my hair out at the kind of stuff that they allow on their platforms. Now, uh, sophisticated analysts will say, well, you can't, you know, you can't just press a button, but AI detection tools are making it potentially much easier to get to detect this stuff and get it off. So the role of legitimate broadcasters in providing a safe haven, and what the hell are we going to do about the platforms? Yeah, so I think there's two ways to kind of conceive of solutions. On the one hand, you have kind of the technical solutions, which in a way is easier, because they're already being developed and you don't need kind of society-wide buy-in or you know lots of dots to connect to develop these so this is things like uh the ai to detect deep fakes which is already being developed the question there is really a technical question as to will there be a point where the deep fakes get so sophisticated that they would beat any ai detection tool because we already to the naked human eye won't be able to detect it. Other technical solutions are things like um, embedding into the hardware of a device um, provenance to prove provenance of any media as being authentic. So from the point of capture on a phone or a camera, a video, uh, you can see, you know, it kind of gets like a watermark. So you know that this is authentic and it hasn't been manipulated. So there's a whole range of tech tools and solutions that are being developed. A lot of them need to be brought together in a networked approach. I think this is the easier side of the solutions. The harder side of the solutions are the societal solutions. And I think are harder because disinformation is not actually because of technology. They've existed, existed since time immemorial. It's just that technology is an amplifier for human intention. And as the tools have become powerful, the disinformation has become more ubiquitous and easier to form and more potent. So when we talk about the societal solutions, Absolutely. One of the first steps is trusted sources of information. So public broadcasters, fact-checking organizations, things like Bellingcat, Snope, 
BBC fact checked, all of these organizations deserve and must have our support, right? Because they're going to be the one of the first lines of defense. But after that, we have to formulate a whole plethora of policy solutions from the regulation of big tech and also having like a sensible conversation about that. And I know you know from your time in government um, that sometimes having a useful conversation around regulation and policy can be difficult because sometimes the, the tech is so far ahead of kind of the policy community. Exactly. So that, <laughs> which is why what you do is so important. Um, all of that needs to happen, but again, a lot of this is going to come from the private sector as companies realize how much risk they're at and in the private sector, solutions are going to be developed that are going to be applied society-wide. I'm going to end on a deep philosophical question, which was provoked by your mentioning uh, David Icke. I mean, uh, obviously, I wouldn't suggest this uh, about David Icke personally, but, you know, in some ways, kind of misinformation, disinformation is such a damaging tool there should be kind of criminal sanctions against people who you can find engaged in this but that leads to a massive 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 philosophical question about the control of information i mean we've talked a lot about the disconnect between an autocratic society and a liberal democratic and open society who on earth is going to decide what is legitimate information and because it seems to me that certainly in a domestic setting a state, a, a UK government would be perfectly within its rights to frankly lock up people who are engaged in promoting, you know, coronavirus, 5G conspiracy theories that led to arson attacks and so on. But that's how on earth do you get over that? How on earth do you even begin to address it? That's a really important question. And I think it kind of ties into we've already been having this debate around like terrorism and at what point is you know your free speech at what point can people be locked up for inciting hatred or violence inciting acts of terror and at what point does that meet free speech look as as i think we if we believe in our values as a society we can't set the precedent of locking up everybody who says something that's dangerous Although I think there is a threshold at which point the legislation around that has to be thought about. And I think previous instances around um, invoking acts of hatred or terror would be a, a, a guiding kind of light. But ultimately, rather than taking up the lock up the, the dangerous people approach, which undoubtedly there will be some who, who do need to be locked up, is that we need to reinstill trust in our information ecosystem and also build the infrastructure around it where you can't just have anonymous actors from anywhere injecting anything into the public debate. And the, the question around how do you, so for example, on social media, one easy thing would be to get people to ID, you know, to verify their identity before they can post online. Yeah. That I would agree. be one thing. Yes, that'd be an easy I thing do. that I think. I mean, yeah, I, no, I know I... It's, it sounds, it's much harder to realize in practice, but I just think it may be the only way forward. I agree. Nina, I just wanted to say, I hope this doesn't sound too glib, but if I had to generate through artificial intelligence, uh, the perfect podcast guest, it would be you. That was a <laughs> fantastic, I loved that discussion. It was absolutely fascinating. And I hope the people listening to it will take away from it if they're a CEO or a 
senior executive in a company that they will have to have discussions and address these issues. And I hope that policymakers listening to this will be thinking this whole, the whole point about national security and disinformation has now become a critical issue. Thank you for being so clear and so engaging. I'm so grateful to you. Thanks so much. Thank you, Ed. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Vasey View, a production of Kindred Media.